for this opportunity we have to sit under your word. Uh, We know when we gather as a church and hear your word taught that you personally meet us as your people, as our God. And so, God, I pray that uh, you would uh, make your presence known among us by changing our hearts through your word, by the power of your spirit. God, I pray you'd help me to speak clearly, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Some of you may be here expecting to hear a missionary update, what was originally scheduled from uh, a brother who is leading churches in far east Russia. Uh, That is not me. Uh, He had to cancel, had to change his plans, unfortunately, uh, just a few days ago. And so uh, I'll be in here for just one week to fill in for that brother. And next week, Matt will continue his series on church history in the Synod of Dort. I'm going to be in 2 Corinthians 7. If you can open your Bibles there, I want to teach you a couple of really helpful verses uh, that I use all the time in trying to minister to others and also to my own soul It's about godly sorrow and repentance. We'll see the meaning of repentance, the necessity of repentance, the motivation, evidence, and benefits of repentance. Uh, We're going to focus on verses 10 and 11, but I'll first set the context for you and start back reading at verse 4, and I think you'll get a sense of uh, Paul's correspondence with relationship with the church in Corinth. Look at verse 4, 2 Corinthians 7. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you, Paul says to the church in Corinth. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So Paul's experiencing great affliction, but he says, in the midst of all of it, I have comfort, I have joy. Uh, And we're told in verses 6 and following, what is the cause of this joy in the midst of affliction? Look at verse 6. God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. How? By the coming of Titus. And here's how God used Titus to comfort Paul. Verse 7. Not only by his coming but also by the comfort with which he, Titus, was comforted by you, Corinthians, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So in the first place, Paul's comforted simply by Titus showing up. Uh, There's a lesson there. Uh, There's something comforting about a believer being just in the presence of another believer. Also, Uh, Titus comforted Paul uh, because Paul could tell that Titus himself was comforted by his time with the Corinthians. And finally, most importantly, Paul is comforted by Titus' coming because Titus brings good news. He brings a good report about how the Corinthians are doing. Uh, The Corinthians are doing well spiritually. And so Paul rejoiced. And the second half of verse 7 gave the details of that good report. Did you see it? He told us of your longing, your mourning... Your zeal for me, so I rejoice still more. Titus told me, you guys were zealous for me, 
and, and therefore the gospel that I preach. You, you, uh, he told us of your longing, similar to your zeal. But then he said, I rejoice because Titus told me that you were mourning, as in crying. Is Paul really saying that he derived joy and comfort from hearing from Titus that he found the Corinthians sad? Yes. Keep reading. Look at verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So Paul wrote the Corinthians a letter before this one. Uh, it, maybe he's talking about 1 Corinthians, but probably talking about one in between. 1 and 2 Corinthians that, that Bible scholars call the severe letter. How would you like to receive something called the severe letter? Um, but, but Paul wrote this severe letter to the Corinthians... And he knew it was going to make them grieve. And he finds out, oh, you know what? Titus found that you did uh, become sad and mourn when you got this letter. And I'm really happy about that. Because you grieved in such a way that it led to your repentance. Paul mentions this letter he had to write back in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3. He says, I sent this letter because I didn't want to make a painful visit to you. And so I decided to write a painful letter to you. So that when I came to visit you, uh, it it wouldn't be brutal. In verse 3 he said, I wrote as I did of chapter 2. So that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those of you who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of all. Look at this, verse 4. I wrote to you out of much affliction in Paul and anguish of heart and many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. So Paul wrote things that he knew that would make them sad to hear, not ultimately because he wanted to cause them pain, but ultimately because he abundantly loved them. So Paul wrote out of the anguish of his heart. And when the Corinthians received the letter, it caused anguish in their heart. And so Paul rejoiced. Paul knew that there can be no true repentance. This is a major point from this morning. There can be no true repentance where there is not grief and mourning and anguish. And verse 10 puts that principle plainly. Look at verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I think you will be so profoundly helped if you can wrap your head around this simple progression at the beginning of verse 10. Godly sorrow produces repentance which leads to salvation, and that without regret. Before we talk about that progression, though, um, about what repentance stems from and results in, 
I want to talk about repentance in and of itself. This is the meaning of repentance. The meaning of repentance. Um, the New Testament, in the Old Testament, when, when the word repentance is used in your English Bible, most of the time that's translating a Hebrew verb that simply means to turn. Okay? That's a basic meaning of repentance, to turn. And it's a specific kind of turn. It's a turn from sin and to God. Acts 26.20 says, repent toward God. Sometimes people turn away from their sin, but it's not biblical repentance because they're not turning toward God as they turn away from their sin, in which case you're just turning from one sin to perhaps a more respectable kind of sin. Uh, but the, word, the words in the New Testament that, that translate into the English word or word family, repent, uh, sometimes it translates a simple verb that just means turn, but most of the time in the New Testament, when you see the word repent or repentance, it comes from this Greek word metanoia. Um, and that's what's here in 2 Corinthians 7. So the word metanoia was used in even non-Christian, ancient Greek writing of the time. And it indicated like knowing or coming to know something after the fact. So with respect to sin, repentance is when after you have sinned, you look back on your sin, and you come to know and believe and even feel something about that sin, which you were not knowing and believing and feeling when you committed it. There's, there's a change in perspective on a past event. Uh, usually, if, if someone gives a simple definition or translation of metanoia, they say it's a change of mind, a change of mind. And the last part of uh, the Greek word metanoia comes from the Greek word for mind, nous. So repentance indicates a person's new judgment upon a previous sin, a new heart disposition toward it. It's a change of mind, a change of heart. And in, in the Bible, uh, someone's mind is a lot bigger than just their thought life. Your mind is, is essentially synonymous with the heart. Um, there, there are some nuances to each word that's specific to each one, but there's a lot of overlap, and, and each one can just be used to refer to your whole inner man, your thinking, your feeling, and affections, and desires, and also your willing, your choosing. So, so a change of mind, we could also say repentance is a change of heart, and we, we use that phrase colloquially, right, not even in churchy speak. Uh, Jim Bob wanted to steal a TV, but then he had a change of heart, right? Uh, when you, when you use that phrase, a change of heart, if what you mean by that is what the Bible means by the word heart, right, talking comprehensively about your inner man, then yes, repentance is simply a change of heart about your past sin. And again, this will change how you think about your sin, how you feel about your sin, and the choices you make about this sin. Uh, if you turn over your handout to uh, the document called Elements of Repentance, this is where I, I mention uh, and, and show you from several different sources, that first paragraph from Louis Burkhoff, and then from some Puritans, Thomas Watson, J.C. Ryle, from uh, Spurgeon, and then from some... Um, confessions and catechisms of, of the Reformation, how when they describe repentance, they include all of these elements, both one's thinking, so you see your sin in a new way, you have knowledge of your sin, 
You have a, a new sense of your sin. It involves your affection or your, your desires, your feelings. You have a sorrow over that sin, a grief, a mourning, even a hatred. And then it also involves, obviously, your volition, your will as well. You look back and you resolve to turn from it. You inwardly purpose not to do that again. So repentance is when you look back, you see, whoa, I have sinned against God, knowledge. I hate that I did that, affections. I hate the thought of doing it again, your will. Okay? So repentance in the Bible is not just behavioristic. It's not just I'm doing something bad and now I need to do something good instead. I need to, I need to change the way I behave. No, no, it goes much deeper than that. It involves your desires. It involves the way you think. The, the ideal is not that just that you would stop doing wickedness and start doing righteousness. Sin and righteousness is a matter of the heart. Hebrews 1.9 says of Jesus that he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. The call to repent is a call not just for you to cease doing wickedness and start doing righteousness. It is a call for you to start hating wickedness and start loving righteousness. It is a change of heart. So that's all I want to say about the meaning of repentance, unless someone wants to ask a question about that. The meaning of repentance. You see your sin in a new way. You're horrified by it. You mourn. You grieve. Maybe you cry if you're given to that kind of thing. Um, You hate it. You purpose to turn from it. You endeavor after new obedience. These verses also show us the necessity of repentance. Look at 2 Corinthians 7.10 again. It says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. All right, I want to key in on that phrase. Repentance leads to salvation. You must repent of your sins to be saved by Jesus. Thomas Watson says in his book on repentance, page one, two, right out of the gate. He says, either sin must drown in the tears of repentance or the soul must burn in hell. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. Jesus began his ministry by preaching, repent and believe the gospel. Paul said he testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, repentance is the word that's left out in our evangelism a lot of times, right? We say, I'm going to share the gospel with people. I'm going to talk about what Jesus did on the cross. I'm going to say you need to accept this for yourself. But, but the biblical gospel includes a call to repent. So our salvation accomplished is the work of Christ, that he became a man just like us. He lived a perfect life. He, he took our, the record of death that stood against us for our sins on himself. He bore in his body Our sins on the tree. He died on a cross as our substitute, taking the punishment from God we deserve. He rose from the dead to show that the sins of his people are fully paid for and done away with. He rose, he sits at at God's right hand, and then sends the Spirit to his people. Um, 
And part of what the Spirit accomplishes is working in His people the necessary response to the gospel, repentance and faith. So, so together with faith, here's something I want to make clear. Together with faith, repentance is the biblical response to the gospel. Okay? Sometimes when, when the words of Scripture talk about the gospel and how we should respond to it, there's just a call to faith. John 3, 16, um, God so loved the world, whoever believes in Him, faith, will not perish. Or in Acts 10, 43, um, says, whoever believes in Jesus receives forgiveness. But there are times in the Scriptures that only repentance is listed as the appropriate response to the gospel. Um, Acts 2, what, what must we do to be saved? Right, one time in Acts, Paul answers that question, believe on the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. One time Paul answers that question and he says, repent. At times, both repentance and faith are listed as the appropriate response to the gospel. I read some of those earlier, Acts 20, 21, Mark 1, 14 and 15. So, so whenever the Scripture commands people to respond to the gospel in faith, I think implied is a call to repentance. And whenever the Scripture calls people to respond in re- repentance in response to the gospel, implied is also faith. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Um, so the salvation that Jesus offers is salvation from sin and its consequences. How could you possibly say, I want Jesus to save me, but I want to keep what Jesus wants to save me from? Repentance is necessary for salvation. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. One describes what you turn to, Jesus, which includes personally entrusting yourself to follow him. And in that same turn of faith, repentance describes what you turn from, from sin. You come to Jesus empty-handed. That's what faith is. But, but to do that, you first have to let go of sin. If there is a hole in our modern gospel, it's that repentance is part of the biblical response. Repentance, together with faith, though, is not just the front door to the Christian life. It's not just about entering the kingdom, and then we can forget about that repentance and faith stuff. The whole Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance and faith. We repent to become Christians, but then we must keep repenting over and over again, because although we grow in holiness and freedom from sin, we're never completely free from sin in this life. You could think about it this way. Is the gospel necessary for the Christian life beyond just becoming a Christian in the first place? Yes. Okay, the gospel takes you all the way home. It doesn't just put you on the road. Well, then the biblical response to the gospel is also necessary for the whole Christian life. Faith and repentance. Christians must continue to repent of sin just like Christians must continue to believe the gospel until their dying day. Um, 
Martin Luther, his first of the 95 theses. Maybe, Matt, you've, you've been thinking about this. Uh, the first one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. A lot of the old guys, when you ask them through reading what they wrote, what is the Christian life? A lot of them would say, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Uh, Thomas Watson said, Christian reader. So he's talking to people who are already Christians, not people who need to be converted. Christian reader. The two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. Faith and repentance preserve the spiritual life just as heat and radical moisture preserve the physical life. I I could read other guys, but I won't. Repentance is crucial for all of us, whether you need to be saved or whether uh, you belong to Jesus. You are called to repent. And that's actually kind of freeing, right? Some of you are saying, oh, I don't, I think I'm a Christian. I don't know if I'm a Christian. What should I do? Is it, well, actually, you just need to repent, whether you are one or you're not one. Just repent and believe the gospel and follow Christ. So, examining the nature of repentance is crucial for all of us. Every single person in this room needs to repent, whether they're a believer already or not. So how precious then is it that in verse 10, God's word gives us a key insight into the motivation of true repentance. Uh, But by a small miracle, I'm actually ahead of time. So does anyone have any questions before I go on to that? Great. Um. This, this is a happy thing. Yes. All right. Yeah, the hole in our modern day gospel is uh, that, that repentance is part of how people must respond to the good news to be saved. Now, again, I have, I have hope there because sometimes when the, when the, when the Bible... Um, when we see people urged to respond to the gospel in the Bible, just faith is called for. Just believe in the Lord Jesus. If you put the whole Bible together, you see, well, that includes a kind of repentance. So I think even people who maybe even intentionally don't, don't say you need to repent to be saved, even in the call to, to believe, God can use that, you know, to, to see people um, repent. So, yeah. Yes? Confession is an element of repentance, but it's, there's not total overlap. Repentance is a big circle, and confession is part of, the, part of that big circle. If you confess the same thing over and over again, are you really repenting? Great question. If you confess the same sin over and over again, are you really repenting? It's a difficult question to answer, and part of what we'll get into is um, you're, none of us repents perfectly because part of what goes into repentance, as we just talked about, 
is, is how you grieve over your sin and you hate your sin and you see the sinfulness of your sin. Well, no one does that perfectly. And we're about to talk about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. So a lot of us, especially if there's a sin that, that just keeps happening, keeps happening, keeps happening, part of the problem is that you could be repent in a way that's motivated by worldly sorrow. Yeah. And so... Um, it, it's, it's tough to answer in a blanket way, yeah. But, but it's very likely if, um, if you've been trying to repent of a sin for a long time, um, especially a sin of, that, that's kind of overt, you know, the, the sins that happen in our hearts at the level of desire, boy, those are, we, we're going to wrestle with those till the end of time. Not the end of time, praise God. Till we die, or the Lord comes back. Um, but, but kind of overt sins, um, like blowing up at people, um, gossiping, pornography, um, lying, thing, things that come out and are not just little battles of the desire of our heart. I would, I would say. Yes, there, your repentance needs to be a truer kind of repentance. There needs to be something, a, a more of a change of your heart that needs to be happening. And, and maybe you'll have some ideas about what that is as we go on. Okay? That's a good question. And this will help to answer it in part. The motivation of repentance So before we're told repentance leads to salvation, we're told that godly grief or godly sorrow produces repentance. And likewise, in verse 9, Paul said, you were grieved into repenting. So repentance grows up out of the seedbed of sorrow. There is no shortcut version of repentance that bypasses sadness. Uh, If you were looking for a quick and easy, pain-free version of repentance, you will not find it. Godly grief produces repentance. So if you're looking for repentance, part of the answer is to go looking for what produces it. Seek out godly sorrow. Seek out having a true sense of your sin and having a broken heart over it. Um, in our kind of happy, slappy, you know, throw a smile on type of culture, we should be careful that we're not too quick to just throw, throw a glass of cool water on the first sign of grief. If you see a brother grieving over his sin, you, know, you shouldn't necessarily automatically say, oh no, oh no, he's sad, stop him. Let godly grief have its work. Frequently in the Bible, repentance is described as mourning or lamentation or weeping. Um, just one example, consider James 4, 8 and following, 4, 8 and 9. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And then here's a command to repent. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's repentance, right? Okay, what does that look like? Next verse, verse 9. Be wretched and mourn. And weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Consider the greatest prayer of repentance in the Bible. Psalm 51. David's prayer of repentance, he sinned in a big-time way uh, with Bathsheba. And, and uh, Bathsheba's husband murders him. And then the psalm of repentance comes to a climax at the end. And David acknowledges first he can't cleanse himself from his sin before God. So, so he says in verse 16 of Psalm 51, God, you don't want me to offer sacrifices. I would give it. That's not what you want. Uh, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. I would give it. But that's not what you want me to do in response to my sin fundamentally. God, I know you don't want me to try and atone for my own sins. So if not sacrifices and offerings, what does God want from sinners? Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. A contrite heart. Contrite means sad. Sad. We could have called this, instead of godly sorrow and repentance, this could have been called gloom. Gloom. But there's a happy ending to this because of the gospel. A broken heart, a contrite heart. This is godly grief in Psalm 51. So for you to turn from your sin, there has to be some degree of heartbreak over your sin. If there is not contrition in your heart, then you won't resolve to turn from it in a way that sticks. Godly grief produces repentance. So if you put the whole progression of the verse back together, uh, godly sorrow produces repentance, which leads to salvation. If there's no salvation where there's no repentance, and there's no repentance where there's no sorrow... And that means if you've never been sad about your sins, then you've never been saved from your sins. Uh, not everyone's going to show sadness in the same way, right? My wife was telling me yesterday, um, I won't tell you the context of the conversation, but she said, listen, if you need to communicate to someone that, uh, that you're really excited about something, you're going to have to do that with your words because it just doesn't come across on your face. <laughs> And I get that, right? Some of us are more emotive than others. Um, and so we're going to feel, you know, what godly sorrow looks like in different people is going to be different. I'm not saying if you've never actually blubbered about your sin, you can't be saved. But you have to be sorry for your sins, right? You know what it means to be sorry? It means to be sorrowful. But this verse calls us to dig deeper. Right? So question one, to ask yourself, am, am I actually sad about this sin? And then question two is, not just whether or not you're sorry, but what kind of sorrow do you have? Not just are you sad, but why are you sad? Verse 10 says there's a couple different kinds of sadnesses over sin that we can have. Only one of them leads to repentance. Look at verse 10 again. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Oh, the difference is so important, isn't it? You can see it in those little equations. 
If you're struggling to turn from sin, you need to inspect your repentance. You need to see, do you have a broken and contrite heart that God does not despise but accepts in sinners? And if so, is that brokenness and contrition predominantly, it won't be perfectly, but predominantly godly sorrow or predominantly worldly sorrow? Like I, I say it, it won't be perfectly godly sorrow. I want to emphasize that before I get into this. If you really look at your heart, you're going to see worldly sorrow. Um, the Bible it talks about repenting with your whole heart and your whole soul. And in the same way that we're called to love God with our whole heart and our whole soul, but we don't love God perfectly, and yet still by God's grace we can actually love God. And the blood of Christ purges our, the impurities in our, our love for Christ so that God actually receives it. The same is true with our repentance. We don't repent perfectly and from a perfectly pure God-centered heart. But we can repent actually. And, and a Puritan said, even our tears of repentance need to be washed by the blood of the Lamb. You, you repenting is not the basis of your right standing with God. The tears of repentance don't wash away your sins. The blood of Jesus washes away your sins. And your repentance is, is the part of the way you just lay hold of that free gift. And part of what the free gift offers is to, to cleanse you of the sinfulness of even your efforts to turn from your own sin such that God receives them in Christ. And he says, okay, this is a contrite heart that I will not despise and receive in Christ. And we're given the Holy Spirit to help us with more and more purity of heart to grieve and turn as we ought. Okay, but, but what's the difference? Godly sorrow, um, simply put, is focused on God. You're sad about your sin because it dishonors and displeases God. You're sorrowful because your sin drags his glory through the mud and it personally grieves him. You have an attitude like David in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now with worldly sorrow, you're sad about your sin, but only because of how it might negatively affect you. You're sad that other people might think poorly of you. Maybe you're sad uh, because your sin makes you think more poorly of you and it harms your self-esteem. I can't believe I did that. Uh, maybe you grieve your sin just because it's led to uncomfortable consequences for you. Maybe you're not growing to hate the sin itself, but you just hate the consequences of it. Um, so Heath Lambert, in his book, Finally Free, which is about repenting from the sin of pornography... But pornography is not like a special class of sin. The way you repent from it is the way you repent from every other kind of sin. And so this, this stuff applies. He says, Godly sorrow is concerned primarily about God's pain and God's reputation. Worldly sorrow is concerned primarily about your own pain and your own reputation. And therefore, when worldly sorrow, the sadness you feel over your sin, if you have worldly sorrow... It's actually just a continuation of the same self-centered heart that led to the sin in the first place, isn't it? 
Someone might believe, especially in, in, in circles that are more um, pietistic and stress, you know, the experience, experiences of faith, you might believe you're walking in repentance because you feel profoundly sad about your sin. But it might not be true repentance if that pain in, of heart is basically self-centered instead of God-centered. Any questions? Because repentance is not a one-time thing, but, but is the way of the Christian life. Godly sorrow is not just a one-time thing, but, but there's a sense in which a kind of grief and pain and mourning in a God-centered way is something that continues through the life of a believer. Yes? Mm-hmm. When she said, go, when Jesus said to the woman, go and sin no more, I think he was basically telling her, repent. Yeah. And he, uh, do, you, do you think that he knew that she could do it? I think he knew that she would sin again in this life. But to repent, that is to purpose. It is my, when I repent, it is my purpose to never sin again in this life. But I know, I know, because of what else the Bible teaches, that I will. That's, that's part of 1 John 1.9. We confess our sins in a way that's filled with hope because we believe the gospel that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Yeah. 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 I mean, what's, what's your other option, right? Is in, As if repentance is... As if when you repent, you say, um, well, since I know that I'm going to sin again, I'm, I'm not going to even plan or purpose to pursue 100% obedience. Re- repentance is you, you plan and purpose and endeavor to, to go and sin no more. Your motive. And then when you go and, and in sin because we're not glorified or sanctified instantaneously. When you do, you're called all over again to repent, to see your sin, to grieve over it in a God-centered way, to hate that you did that, to hate the thought of doing it again, to purpose. I don't want to do that anymore. That's not what I want. Yes, it's, it's a purposing. Yeah. Good question. So, so there's a sense in which godly grief um, characterizes the Christian life. In the book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, um, Murray, I just blanked on his first name. John Murray, thank you. The way of sanct- he says, the way of sanctification is the way of contrition for the sin of the past and of the present. Just as faith is not a momentary act, but an abiding attitude of trust and confidence directed at the Savior, so repentance results in constant contrition. The broken spirit and the contrite heart are abiding marks of the believing soul. But, Sinclair Ferguson says, 
Because true repentance is a repentance that trusts in the gospel, always together. True repentance is the sweetest pain in the whole world. Because what are you heartbroken about in true repentance? How your sin is against God. There is a balm in Gilead. Forgive the uh, allegory. There's a balm in Gilead for godly grief, the pain of godly grief. It is the gospel. So if you're brokenhearted about God, about how you've sinned against God, and you hate that you did that, and you come to Him, and you confess to Him, and then you believe the gospel, you ask for God's forgiveness, and then you believe that God actually will forgive you because of what Jesus did on your behalf. Oh, that is wonderful news. You believe that even though you did this sin, and He's grieved, and you're grieved about it, that He still loves you and accepts you, and He won't count it against you. You're full of joy and hope. That's why, this is how I, how I think about it um, in 1 Thessalonians 4 when it says that Christians don't grieve like the world does. It's talking about how Christians grieve when a, a believer dies. But the same idea, I think, could be applied to how we feel about our sins. Christians don't need to grieve over their sins in the same way that, they, that the world might grieve over the bad things they've done. Christians can grieve in hope because of the gospel. So there's actually a good test to, to see if your repentance, if your sorrow over your sin is godly or worldly, is preach the gospel to yourself. If it helps, then your sorrow was likely godly sorrow. If, if your, the gospel doesn't address the sadness you feel in your heart over your sin then your sorrow is probably worldly sorrow because the gospel does nothing for your, the way you look in front of others. And the gospel does nothing for your self-esteem and your pride. And the gospel does, doesn't take away the earthly consequences of your sin. In fact, the gospel says we can have God as our Father, which means He will use earthly consequences for our sin to help us not to commit it again. Okay? So the, if, if, if the gospel doesn't scratch the itch of your heart, doesn't, doesn't give you hope and even joy in your sadness, then you may have worldly sorrow. So, okay, if, if I say that the Christian life, because it's a life of repentance and part of that is godly grief, does that mean Christians are called to a life of gloom? No. Yes. No. <laughs> gloom connotes a type, a kind of hopelessness, right? You, you are called to the type of life that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 6, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Okay. Um, when David talks about God, you want a broken and contrite heart. Doesn't he also pray, restore to me the joy of our salvation? So this path of contrition over sin is also the path of the joy of salvation. Okay? Um, I like what Richard Baxter says. Now, if, if our age, maybe if, if the side of the cliff we might fall off on is to be too happy-slappy, 
um, maybe some, at least this is the stereotype, the cliff that maybe um, a previous age might fall off on is that like the more sad you were, the more holy you were, right? Like you're, you're, you're sinning if you smile almost, okay? So, so Baxter has a good quote about this, Richard Baxter, um, about the Christian life and, and the role of sorrow. God has commanded you and requires of you no more fear or grief than is necessary to separate you from sin and teach you to value and use the remedy, which is the gospel. So it's not like I need to be more godly, I just need to try and be more morose all the time. No. God commands you a grief, but God commands no more grief than is necessary to teach you the value of the gospel and to teach you to use it and to separate you from sin. Now, in saying that, isn't he admitting that there is a kind of grief that is necessary to separate us from sin and to teach us to value the gospel and and to, to lead us to lay hold of it? Okay, we're going to turn our attention to verse 11 now, the evidence of repentance. And our miracle has run out. I am not ahead of time anymore. Okay, notice in verse 10, godly grief produces repentance. Now, verse 11, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. And also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. So verse 10 said godly grief produces repentance. Verse 11 says godly grief produces these seven characteristics. So you can put those things together and say these seven characteristics then are evidences of true repentance. Godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief produces these seven characteristics, these evidences. So this is a very helpful verse that lists the evidence of Repentance. What does repentance motivated by godly sorrow look like? Well, first, it's earnestness. True repentance is characterized first by earnestness. And and since we're running out of time, I'm going to lump into this a couple of other things. It's characterized by earnestness, longing, zeal. Again, there's some distinct nuances to each of those evidences in this verse, but a lot of overlap. So I'll take them together. True repentance from sin demonstrates itself by an intense desire to put the sin to death. An intense desire that shows up, zeal, longing, that corresponds to resolute action. In fact, the word translated um, earnestness here is is a Greek word that eventually the English word speed comes from. There's There's a haste. You are going after it. This earnestness... This earnest desire to turn from sin doesn't go away whenever the dust settles. The zeal to turn from the sin lasts. Whereas those who have worldly sorrow won't have a lasting earnestness, longing, zeal to discontinue their sin. Maybe they, ha- they, they seem to have a kind of earnestness and a zeal to turn away from this sin. But that earnestness fizzles out whenever the painful consequences of sin start to go away. Or you just get used to them. Or maybe they drag their feet 
and really are just trying to tiptoe around further perceived harm to self or reputation. I should mention that the third page of your handout has a chart listing these things. So if you want to scramble to try and write down everything I'm saying, that's great. You're going to learn it better, soak it in better. But, you know, you could just take a break and know that you have all the information here. Second, true repentance that comes from godly grief is marked by an eagerness to clear yourself. An eagerness to clear yourself. So you pursue... um, Eagerly ways to be done with the sin, to eradicate it, maybe accountability. You take radical measures to cut off access or availability to the sin. Um, This word is the word that we get the word apologetics from. Okay, So so I I tell people that this is like you are eager to build a believable case that you really are trying to put this sin to death. Okay, Like you, you are eager to do apologetics to establish the genuineness of your own repentance. So you are performing deeds in keeping with the repentance. You are um, bearing fruit in keeping with the repentance. Um, on the other hand, worldly sorrow would, would maybe be eager only to mitigate the painful consequences of sin. The verse mentions indignation, which is anger. So those who have godly grief will actually hate their sin. Fear, uh, godly, the fear of godly grief is not just a fear that others will find out and your reputation will be harmed, but, but it's an alarm that God has knowledge and hatred of sin. And so you're willing to bring it to the light and bring it to God to be reconciled to Him and, and to others. Finally, the verse mentions punishment. I take this to mean that the truly repentant person will accept any rightful consequences for their sin and pursue doing what is right and just, even if it's painful, and make restitution, if necessary, impossible. Of course, those who lack godly grief will not exhibit this mark of repentance. They will seek to avoid earthly punishments, even if they're rightful. They'll try to escape or or wriggle out of consequences. So this is a helpful list for yourself and for others of examining how genuine is my repentance? How much godly sorrow do I actually have? All of you, if you're really examining yourself, um, and you're not the, the liar of First John chapter 1, probably see that, whoa, my repentances are not very good a lot of time. They lack earnestness, zeal, desire, longing. You need, you need as, as often as you pursue repentance, you must pursue faith in Christ and the gospel. Keep those two together. As you pursue this kind of repentance, you must remember and trust with all your heart that Jesus died for self-centered people like us. And Jesus died even so you can be forgiven for the sin that characterizes the sadness that you feel about your own sin, your own self-centeredness and pride and fear of man. 
So if you are repenting and trusting in Christ alone for salvation, that record of debt that stands against you in part for your worldly sorrow is canceled and nailed to the cross. Preach this to yourself. Preach this to yourself. Okay? Don't respond to worldly sorrow by being sad about it in a worldly sorrow kind of way. Okay? Preach the gospel to yourself. That This will help, as I mentioned earlier, to see, do I, am I sad in a way that actually is centered on God? But it will also, it will help, um, in addition to being a sweet medicine to your soul, if your sorrow is godly, at least in a predominant way, but it will also help to purify your sorrow in that as you preach to yourself how God has loved you despite your sin, that will cause you to love him more and more, right? We love because he first loved much. The one who's forgiven much loves much, okay? You preach the gospel to yourself. You grow in love for Christ. If you love God, that will fuel godly sorrow, which will fuel true repentance, which gives you the hope of the gospel, which causes you to love God more, which fuels godly sorrow and repentance. And it's a beautiful upward spiral from glory to glory until we are in glory. The benefits of repentance, finally. And this is wonderful to end on. Verse 10, godly sorrow leads to repentance, uh, produces repentance, which leads to salvation. Those last two words are so sweet. Without regret, without regret. If you repent and pursue a broken heart before God, you're going to end up experiencing no regret. A kind of a release from the kind of worldly sorrow that you could feel that's hopeless and would crush you thinking about your past sin. And even before that, verse 9, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You felt a godly grief... So that, and here's the result of your godly grief, you suffered no loss through us. If you start with godly grief, you end up without regret, and you end up suffering no loss. That is, there is no, um, there is no bad thing in, in the sense of what God would characterize as a bad thing that, that comes upon you as a result of pursuing this path of uh, godly sorrow and repentance. And my favorite benefit of repentance of all the ones we've listed so far. Verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, and listen to this, though only for a while... Only for a while. The grief of godly grief gives way to the joy of salvation and the joy of having a clean conscience before God because of the gospel. Now something else is going to happen where you need, you need to grieve all over again about this new sin that you commit, right? But again, that grief will be only for a while. 
if you repent in a God-centered way with godly sorrow. Ten o'clock. Let's close in prayer. God, I thank you for teaching us um, your word, these principles. Thank you for calling us to repent. God, you know that that is good for us. You know that's for our joy and your glory in us. Thank you for being the kind of God that will not despise a sinner, even a vile sinner, who comes to you with a broken heart and contrite spirit. How gracious and merciful you are. Thank you for the joy of salvation that you offer us. God, I pray that you would teach everyone in here to know more what it means to grieve in hope, to know what it means to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And I pray that that you would use um, something from this hour, this time we've spent in your word, to build up your church for the glory of the name of Jesus. Amen.